Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. The Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the RNLI, is one of the most beloved, the most respected and the most recognised institutions in Britain. Ireland, with their bold colour scheme, they set out in any weather to rescue people whose lives are imperiled on the oceans that surround us. To be British is to love the RNLI. But recently, the RNLI has been in the news, been dragged into the political conversation in this country. People have been taking very small boats, very small boats indeed, very dangerous boats from the coast of Europe, France, over here to the English coast. Migrants have been trying to come across and the RNLI has been rescuing them and bringing them safe to British shores. So what's the history of the RNLI? Where did it all begin? What's its ethos? And how does saving these lives at sea fit into that history? Well, I've gone to the right person, Mark Wordsworth. He was a volunteer in Alderney on the RNLI, in the Channel Islands. And he's now on the board of the RNLI Council. He's a great guy. He knows the history and uh, he's a great ambassador for the RNLI. So great to have him on the podcast. If you want to listen by any chance, if you share my passion for maritime history, just by any chance if you do, well, you've got plenty of it available. Uh, history Hit TV, it's our history channel. It's a streaming service. You get to watch documentaries wherever you are in the world and whatever hardware you got with you. If you've got a projector, you can project it onto a wall. If you've got a phone, you can watch it on your phone. You can do whatever you like. You can watch it on TV. You just go to the link in the description of this podcast. You click on that with your little dainty finger and you get taken through to uh, History Hit TV. Please head over and do that. It's the world's best history channel. You're going to absolutely love it. So go and do all that. Go and subscribe to History at TV after you've listened to this interview with the wonderful Mark Wordsworth. Enjoy. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. Where did your particular journey into the RNLI, to lifeboats, begin? Did you start out as a volunteer? Yes, I think I've always, since I was bucket and spading in Cornwall, when I was very young, you see lifeboats going out. I think for a lot of the British public and the Irish public as well, that's just for people of a certain age, just became part of one's growing up. And what did it for me, and we may talk about it later, is the Penn Lee disaster in 1981. I, I was at university then, and it seemed to be in the papers for days. 
And I sort of thought then, do you know, if I can ever do something like that, if I can ever make a contribution to that institution, that's what I'm going to do. I had an opportunity when I changed jobs in 2005 to volunteer. So at that point, I volunteered and became a crew member on a Trent-class lifeboat in the Channel Islands. And I served as crew from 2006 to 2017. And then I went on to become a member of the RNLI Council. And then last year, I became an RNLI trustee. But Mark, hang on a second. I know there's no cushy postings in the RNLI. They're all pretty tough. But Aldi, wow, that's not messing about. You'd have seen some some big seas down there in the Channel Islands, some big tidal ranges. You get a lot of weather down there. You'd have seen major incidents. Yes, I mean, Aldi, and indeed, the further south you go down the Bay of San Marlo to the other Channel Islands that have lifeboats like Guernsey and then onto Jersey, their tidal range gets bigger and bigger. And so that confluence of waters that comes down through the channel in from the Atlantic and up through the Bay of San Marlo sort of all arrives somewhere around the Channel Islands. And so with a six, seven metre tidal range in Alderney, going down to possibly 13 metres in Jersey, the tides can be up to 10 knots, which means that lifeboating situations or boating situations that in theory don't look particularly dangerous, an object that can move 10 miles on spring tide in an hour raises the level of risk for everybody, particularly the casualty. Right, well, let's go back. You're not just a man of action, you're a historian as well. So let's talk about the history. Where does this all begin? So the official history begins on the 4th of March, 1824. And there was a gentleman called Sir William Hillary, who is acknowledged as the actual founder, although he was supported by a number of other people in establishing the institution. And his background was that he was living on the Isle of Man, and he was witnessing a lot of shipwrecks. And about that time, there were approximately 1,800 ships a year wrecked on the British coasts and the Irish coasts. And it's quite astonishing, really, because it's like five a day, every day. And this came to a head in 1822, when Hillary, within a two-month period, witnessed from shore on the Isle of Man the loss of two Navy ships, which was HMS Racehorse and HMS Valiance. And he thought then, right, we should do something about this. And he wrote a pamphlet in 1823, which is really the whole basis of what is now the R&Lie. And the values that he put in there was what he wanted to take forwards. He published it, and it was called a proposal to establish a national institution for the preservation of life at sea from shipwreck. And he thought it was going to be a no-brainer to get admiralty support. But he didn't get Admiralty support, despite the fact the Admiralty seemed to be losing a lot of ships. They didn't really buy into the idea that they might need some national service to rescue sailors from shipwreck. So he just changed tack and approached a number of well-connected people. And his background was such that he seemed to have connections that he could access those sorts of people. And so he got together a group of people including the Prime Minister of the day, the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Wilberforce, merchants, politicians, and they all met in a pub or a tavern, as it was then. They met in the London Tavern on the 4th of March, 1824, and they established what is now the R and the Line. And the founding principles was to raise a body of men who were all volunteers, 
who would be based around the coast where they lived and would go to sea without any judgment and rescue anyone in danger at sea. And beyond that, he was far-sighted enough to see that when they were rescued, they'd need welfare because obviously there were no debit cards then. <laughs> There's no internet banking. When they were shipwrecked, they were destitute. And so he recognized that funds would be needed to repatriate them and look after them. And that was his basis for, for founding the Iron Line. Isn't it fascinating? It really does sound like there's a sort of consistent thread, an identity, an idea that runs all the way from that moment right up to the present day. Yes, I think given that he was writing in 1823, when the values of society may have been slightly different than they are today, he was far-sighted enough to write in his pamphlet that the institution should rescue people of any nation, basically, both in peace and in war. And that's quite important because the Iron Light, and we may touch on this later, did have a lot of activity during both wars. He was also far-sighted enough to see that women would be play a major part in the Iron Lie. And indeed, over the years, that has been so, and even more so today. And in terms of the knowledge that's gained from this group of people, he also said the knowledge should be spread to the four corners of the world so that the life-saving knowledge can benefit other countries as well. And actually, for someone writing in 1823, that might have been quite a far-sighted set of objectives. But I'm pleased to report that the RLI is doing that today and the basic tenets of what Sir William wanted to be done, a volunteer service with no government funding whatsoever from any of the governments of waters that the RLI operates in and rescuing people on a completely non-judgmental basis still goes on today, as indeed our international work of educating people around the world on how they might save people in their waters as well. Well, they had what it took. You know, they were good lobbyists, weren't they? Because they got very important people involved and they got the project delivered. They got it over the line. Yes, I think the life of Sir William Hillary might be worth a podcast on his own. But how he got all his social connections, I'm not quite sure. He had previously been an equerry to the Duke of Sussex. And he'd also used 20,000 of his own money to raise a 1,400-strong private army in Essex of infantrymen, cavalrymen, and went to fight alongside the British army against the French in probably around 1803. And so through all of this, he seemed to have developed a range of connections that enabled him to pull this group together. And the meeting was chaired by the then Archbishop of Canterbury in 1824, actually commented in the minutes of the meeting, he thought it was such a good idea, he was quite surprised no one had thought about doing it before. Okay, now I don't want to be too geeky here and get too much into the weeds, but I've got to talk about the boats just briefly. I need to talk about your boats because throughout British history, your lifeboats have become so recognisable. Let's have a spin through some of the boats you've deployed since the earliest days. Well, there's been a long history of evolution of those vessels, as I'm sure you and your listeners will understand. And one of the things that Hillary wrote in his pamphlets, and I'll translate it into modern English, not 1823 English, if we're going to send people to sea, volunteers to rescue people that they've never met before and might never see again, and to risk their lives, we owe it to them to provide them with the best kit available. And that founding principle from then is exactly what the RNLI does today. You know, our number one mantra is we keep our people safe. 
And that is the most important thing that people think about every day when they're designing new boats, designing new life-saving kit. It sort of started back in Lukin, a coach builder in London in 1785, is generally credited with patenting a first lifeboat, which he called an unimmersible, which I take to mean unsinkable. And that was before the Iron Lake, as many people over the years have rescued many people in distress at sea before the lifeboat service. And then in about 1789, there was a big disaster at the mouth of the time, which everyone could see from the shore, and lots of people drowned. So they launched the competition then to design a new lifeboat. And the winner was a gentleman called Henry Greathead, and he's largely credited with being the inventor of the lifeboat. It took most of his design, plus some bits they borrowed from some of the other entrants, and that made what is called the original, inverted commas, that was its name, lifeboat, which was nine metres long, had 12 crew. There's one surviving model of it, if anyone wants to go and see it, which is in a museum at Redcarth, the Zeppelin Museum. You can actually go and see an original if you wish to. And we got to about the 1850s, and then there was another competition, and a gentleman called Beeching designed a rowing sailing boat, which they called a pulling sailing boat. That lasted for probably 80 years. And then the lifeboat started to follow the same technologies that the motor industry and other industries followed. So in 1890, they decided going to have some steam lifeboats. So they built some of those. With hindsight, that probably wasn't the best idea. Fine for big liners, not so good for a lifeboat that's been thrown around the sea and with water coming over the top of it if your propulsion depends on steam. So in about 1909, they switched to petrol. So they put petrol engines on the back of boats and they were pretty unpopular with the crews. We think because they were very unreliable to start with and crews didn't like that. They then developed them, then they moved on to diesel and that's the propulsion that we still use today. And then as time went by, the main thing they didn't have at that stage was self-writing. And when Lukin describes it as an unemergible boat. People were thinking at the time, the thing we need to do is to make this thing unsinkable. But actually, what was far more important is to make something uncapsizable, if that's a word, because most of the lives lost during that period in the Iron Lie were when boats capsized, not when boats sank. And then we got into the 60s. Leisure activities on water exploded. Leisure boating, scuba diving, Everything else that happens offshore that we see today, kayaking, paddle boarding has come in recently. And so there was a need then for boats that could do a lot of inshore work. And around the same time, someone had invented the inflatable boat, which was you know, a small boat with an inflatable tube. And so the RLI in the 60s developed the D-Class, which was a small inflatable boat that could whiz around and happily pick people up very close inshore. And that went on then to the Atlantics, which were ribs, rigid inflatable boats. They have an inflatable tube or sponson and a solid V hull. And there's a lot of those in service now. And then they went through a program of developing the self-writing lifeboat. So every lifeboat today that's an all-weather lifeboat is a self-writing lifeboat. That'll be the Trents and the Sevens that came in in the, the mid-90s, the E-classes on the Thames and the Tamar and the Shannon, which is the latest lifeboat, which was launched in 2014. And all those lifeboats are location specific. 
Some slipway launched if they need to be because the harbour dries out so they can't get it in. Some permanently afloat, basically. But the Shannon, which is the latest one, is effectively the best lifeboat that the Iron Lies ever built. It was designed in-house. It was built in-house. It uses water jets rather than propellers. It's highly renewable. And more particularly, it can almost be launched from anywhere. You can send it down the slipway, you can leave it afloat, or you can drive it on its launch platform across the beach and launch it into the surf and recover it from the surf in a very sophisticated way. And it also has a platform that spins round, so it can be relaunched within 10 minutes. And because it doesn't have propellers, you can just drive it straight up the beach. Mark, I have a dream. I have a dream I want to share with you, and I think you could help me make this a reality, in fact. I would love to go out on a Shannon class, close up those doors, strap myself in to a seat, and just go into the worst weather that this wind-battered archipelago on the fringes of Europe has to offer. I want to take an Atlantic storm right in the teeth and sit snug and safe as a cork bobbing about in the waves. Yeah, I think... Those of us who've been out on self-writing lifeboats, it only gives you a much greater respect for those early lifeboat crews and the risks they took knowingly when they knew their boats would not do that. It's been a continuous, continuous programme of improvement in the technologies to the boats we have today, all of which are just outstanding at what they're designed to do. For the most part, they're designed sometimes to do the same thing, and sometimes to do different things in different locations around the coasts. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit, talking about the RNLI. More coming up. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Well, let's talk about some of those remarkable men and women in the past. Who are some of the lifeboat crew that you particularly admire? It's quite difficult to talk about necessarily individuals because we say we are one crew. And even if a coxswain on a lifeboat gets a gold medal, there were, in fact, six or seven other people on that boat as well, probably. The RNLI has, over the years, saved 143,000 people. And on average, lifeboats launch about eight and a half thousand times a year. And there are 458 lifeboats in the fleet on 238 lifeboat stations. So that's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff all of the time. And we have a measure of lives saved, which is quite interesting. So although we say we saved 143,000, Many, many more people have been rescued than that because the RNLI's measure of a life saved is that you undoubtedly probably would have died if you hadn't been rescued by a lifeboat or indeed a lifeguard, because we shouldn't forget that we also have 1,200 lifeguards on around 200 beaches throughout the whole of the season that those beaches are operational. So the measure is not just how many people did we just tow in, because there are many tows or similar where no one was ever going to have their life in peril. And those get counted in the people we've assisted or people we've rescued, but they're not the same as the measure that we count as life saved. So that's the scale of the service. And to deliver that service, it has about... Five and a half thousand volunteer lifeboat crew and three and a half thousand volunteer shore helpers. And another 23,000 volunteers that support that organization. And so it is a vast enterprise. And over the years, it's done some things that are so astonishing that if there wasn't a historical record of it or a photograph, one might not even believe it could have been done or true. Everyone focuses on the big losses or the big rescues. But there's just some things that just for me goes to the heart of what the lifeboat service is and does. And I can't name any of the crew, but one of my favourites is the Paul Up Weir rescue of 1899 when an 1800-tonne sailing ship was being towed off the North Devon coast and it lost its tow, it lost its rudder. And so the Limith lifeboat was charged with launching, but it couldn't launch because the conditions were just outrageous. It couldn't even get its own lifeboat out in its own waters. And so the crew thought, right, well, we'll just have to take the lifeboat to where we need to take it to. 
So they dragged it. This is a 10-ton lifeboat on a carriage. They dragged it over Exmoor for 13 miles. There was 100 villagers, 18 horses, 400 metres of ascent. So they dragged it all the way to Porlock Weir, where the vessel was in trouble, launched it. They took them 11 hours to do that. And then the 14 crew jumped in and rowed to the vessel. And when the tug came to help them, they went across the Bristol Channel because they thought, well, we better stay with it just in case something happens. And when they'd done that, they rode all the way home again across the Bristol Channel. And you look at things like that and just think, that is just incredible. It's that ethos that's in the iron line. We can do anything. And as the motto says, with courage, anything is possible. And I think things like that just illustrate what people will do to make sure they can go and save some people that they've never heard of or never met. And they're not getting even paid for it anyway. You know, and many things that have happened in the Iron Line then lead on to other important things that have developed the Iron Line. So the biggest loss on any one day was the Mexico in 1886. So the Mexico was a German bar that left Liverpool. Four days later, it made it as far as the Ribble Estuary. That's how bad the weather was, because anyone who knows that part of the coast of England, it's not very far from Liverpool to the River Leicester. So if it's taken you four days, it's obviously pretty heavy weather. And there were 12 German sailors on board. And they sent out the Southport lifeboat and they had 16 crew, 14 died. It capsized, 14 died. So they sent out the Living St. Anne lifeboat. It capsized, all 13 crew died. So at that point, there were 27 men dead and they're still trying to rescue 12 German sailors. And so they sent out another lifeboat. That's the thing that gets me, is what drives men? If you knew the first two lifeboats were lost, and you were then the next one sent out, the drive and the commitment to get there must have been incredible. And they did get there, and they did rescue the 12 German sailors and brought them back to shore. And that's the greatest loss of life in a single day, that the Iron Lie has suffered. And the reason why I say that is because it links on to how the Iron Lie developed because that disaster left behind 16 widows and 50 children. And one of the things, again, foresightedly, when Hillary set up the Iron Lie, he recognised to get people to volunteer, they would have to offer money if they'd been killed at sea or died at sea because otherwise their families would be left destitute. So benevolent funds were set up as well which meant that people could not be feared of leaving their loved ones behind destitute. And so that became an important part of it. And then they need to raise a lot of money for that many people. So a local businessman called Sir Charles McCarran and his wife, they decided to organise the first ever street collection of any charity in the world. He looked at the RNLI and thought, do you know, like many charities, this is being supported by a small number of wealthy people. So he decided to invert that model. And he thought what we need is a large number of people giving a small amount of money. So they dragged the lifeboat through the streets of Manchester in 1891. They raised £5,000 with people just putting in half pennies and pennies in tins. And £5,000 is an enormous sum of money for that time. And that then generated the idea that they took on of what's called Saturday lifeboat days and street collections and then other charities took up that model of recognising that they shouldn't be dependent on a small number of wealthy benefactors, better to appeal to the people. And so that 
Mexico disaster, again, changed how the Iron Lie raised money and is funded, etc. So out of a lot of these events have come good developments that have changed the institution for the better. Your mention of German sailors there I thought was really interesting. And it occurs to me that, you know, during the two world wars as well, you'd have pulled lots of enemy combatants, German sailors and downed airmen out of the waters around Britain and mariners as well, and probably fishermen and civilian mariners as well. Today, you're helping illegal immigrants who get into trouble as they cross the channel. Is there an equivalence here? Is this about you guys operating outside the political, the strategic aims of the government at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the disadvantages of being an independent charity is the RNLI has to raise about £180 million a year to do what it does year in, year out from the public and similar. The massive advantage of being an independent charity is that you're not at the whim of government or any other agencies that may wish you to do things that don't sit within the objects that you were founded for. And William Hillary was absolutely clear that the objective of this was to rescue any human beings whose lives were at risk at sea. And the Iron Lie has been true to that all the way through, because when a boat launches, one's got no idea what you're going to. You don't know who's on board. You don't know where they've come from. And so in the same way as the 12 German sailors on the Mexico, less so in the First World War, because in the First World War, there were very few aircraft. So once the Second World War came and there were more submarines and aircraft, then a lot more lifeboat activity was rescuing people from situations. So if we just take the Second World War, then basically lifeboats launched just over 3,700 times of which 2,200 were due to attack by the enemy. And they would rescue anybody. In fact, I was looking on the internet and I noticed there was a photograph for sale. This was last week for £30, an original photograph of the Dover lifeboat in 1940, bringing in an injured German airman who had been shot down out of a Messerschmitt 109. And they wouldn't have batted an eyelid at that because we're in the business of saving lives at sea. It's on the tin. It's what we do. And it's exactly the same for the migrant crisis. We do not judge anybody in the same way. If you fail to maintain your boat and you get into trouble, if you fail to put enough diesel in your motor cruiser and you run out, you get stranded in the middle of the ocean. We don't say, well, it's your own fault. You should have put some more diesel in. We just go. That's what we're there to do. And it's for someone else to make other decisions once those people in stress have been saved and landed. How can people find out more, get involved, donate, maybe even volunteer, become a lifeboat person? I was going to touch on volunteering because volunteering has changed hugely since the RNLI was founded. Originally, in Hillary's vision, this is what his pamphlet says, we want fishermen, pilots, boatmen, and people who retired from the Navy. And so when the first boats were put out there, there was no training. A village observer just got given a boat and left to it because... Everyone in the boat came from a maritime background. And that sort of developed into giving them a boat, even though there was still maritime background and training them. Today, the vast majority of people who volunteer for the RNLI do not have any maritime background at all. And it's not necessary. 
to have a maritime background. And I wanted to get that point across clearly. I don't want people thinking, oh, I don't know how to sail or I don't know anything about navigation. So I can't be an R&Y person. We have four core values. Basically, you've got to be selfless, you've got to be dependable, you've got to be trustworthy, and you've got to be courageous. But courageous doesn't mean courageous risk your life. There's lots of forms of courage that can help the R and lie. And if you've got those values, you can volunteer and we will train you from scratch, even if you've never done anything other than paddle on the beach. And so the boat I served on, you know, we had builders, we had scaffolders, we had plumbers, we had someone who ran a market gardening business. We had me who's got a theatre background. It's all types of walks of life. Men and women can now be on lifeboats. So the idea of some hoary-handed expert fishermen aren't our crews anymore. And also technology's changed. So in the latest boats, you know, the Shannon and the Tamar, they've got SIMS, which is system information management systems. So people sitting in the boats have track pads. You know, they've got mice to run the engine systems and joysticks to steer the boat. So anyone can do that when they're trained. And the training is fantastic. And if you're into learning new things, then you should think about doing that. And it's a big challenge for us volunteers, volunteers at the front of the organisation, because the gentrification of the coast is an issue. If you don't live within 10 minutes of a lifeboat station, you can't really be on the crew because you've got to be able to get there within 10 minutes, your page is going off. And there are some places, I'm sure you're aware, in the southwest of England where it's incredibly difficult for people to buy houses in places that have been done. That's an issue for us. Zero hours contracts, people not knowing when they're going into work or not. That's a change in society, which also changes the type of people where they've got the time to volunteer. So volunteering, we always need more volunteers. We onboard about Two and a half thousand volunteers a year due to retirements or unavailability or people who move away. And that's a big operation. And we need to continue to do that. So if you want to find out how to volunteer, we've got a, what we think is a fantastic website, www.rnlive.org. You can go and find about how to volunteer. You can go and find out about how to get involved in other aspects of the RNLI, whether it's working in shops, museums, fundraising. There's a great section on heritage, which will tell you a lot more than what I've told you. And go and have a mooch around on the website and see what you find. Great stuff, Mark. Thanks for everything you've done. Thank you. Thanks, folks. You've met Dinder on the episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.